Well, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and whatever you're going through. Uh, Today, I am thrilled to have our very first returning guest, the one and only Mrs. Kemi Collioso. Kemi, great to have you with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me back again. (laughs) You were so good last time. We have to get you back. I don't know. You got me back to waffle some more, but hey... (laughs) Uh, so, Kemi, you are mum of Femi and TJ, who yeah. we established last time you embarrassed one of them, and, you know, with any luck, we'll embarrass the other one today as well. Absolutely. <laughs> That's my job. Uh, yeah. uh, wife of Toppy, uh, also a speaker. You run the Courageous Women's Conference, and for much of your professional life, you're a nurse um, and uh, specifically trained in end-of-life care practitioning um, and offering bereavement support. Um, and it's that really that we wanted to, to get you back on today to talk to us about is is this whole area of grief and supporting people both approaching loss and then after loss. Um, someone who's very familiar with, with death, no doubt, from the work that you were doing. Um, I think you're going to be really helpful at just uh, helping us as Christians think thoughtfully, um, not just about the, the spiritual side of what goes on when a person dies, but then also how we can better emotionally and spiritually care for and pastor people leading up to death but then also after they've passed as well um does that sound okay that does it does <laughs> okay well that, to me that sounds like a huge thing that okay, I, I was speak gonna into. say it's a lot but we'll see how we go <laughs> but this is you're obviously very familiar with this so um where do where do you want to start um Kemi also you're familiar with doing this kind of training where's a good place to dive in um I suppose maybe start with the reality of death should we do that um get yeah, that, let's do that awkward bit out of the way um i think we're in a society where people don't like to talk about death a lot uh, it's uncomfortable it's unpleasant but it's a reality that we all have to live with and i think especially in the west we can sanitize death a lot and so we don't get used to actually dealing with death i think it's in ireland when someone dies they actually lay out the body in the house and people come and crowd around and pay their respects so kids I think get used to seeing or or addressing death um so yeah death is a reality um I can't remember who said it but he said that that there are two things certain in this world is that you will be taxed and that you will die yeah yeah, I think it was Mark Twain I often (laughs) quote that Uh, but then people like to challenge me on that. So, you know, there are other certainties as well. The faithfulness and goodness of true, God. True, 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 true. <laughs> um, which which is, a, is a not not an unhelpful segue to combining those two things because um, we do fear death so much. And yet, as Christians, we are also aware of the goodness and loving kindness of God in the way that we approach death and think about death. Um, how, maybe this may be diving in at a wrong place, but how does being a Christian shape the way you think about death and that you'd encourage other people to think about death? Um, I think being a Christian, so for me, working in palliative care, you are preparing someone for death. Um, and one of the tricky things for me as a Christian is that you believe in a God who heals and he does heal. And a lot of the times, you know, I, uh, as a palliative care nurse, you spend a lot of time with your patients coming up to death and you enter into their world a little bit. Um, And so often I would have a patient who's quite young, who's got young children, and I feel a burden to pray for that person, to pray for healing. But at the same time, I'm preparing them for death. Is that that where I'm coming at with this? And um, how do those two things just line up together? And I, I often feel like, 
God is, you know, God does heal and he, you know, there's a whole theology around suffering and, 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 and that kind of stuff. And I won't go into that. There are people who do it much better than I do. But as a Christian, I very, very quickly recognize the sovereignty of God in, in everything that I do. And that I am in palliative care for a reason, for a purpose, that it's a privilege to be with someone towards the end of their life. But nevertheless, I never lose faith in a God that can heal. So in preparing that person for death, I'm still saying, actually, God, if it's your will, then you will heal. Um, but we, you know, when you live on this earth, you only see a little bit, a fraction of eternity. We have to, as Christians, as a Christian, I live with eternity in mind. So I often feel that it's an incomplete gospel if you don't speak about the, the reality of death and that healing is not always going to be the kind of healing that we expect. Um, it's almost as if we see death, you know, it, calls, it talks about end of life care and we see death as an end, but for a Christian, it's an end with a bend. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, you, you come to the end, but there's definitely a bend there and round the corner for a Christian, you know that there's a hope beyond this life. But for non-Christians, they often just see it. And sometimes they know there's a bend, but they're not, there's no assurance as to what's round it. Um, so it's very much a case of, I'm here to do what God has put me on this, you know, for that, time in my life it was very much a calling I never always felt called to serve in church as in you know what we think is the church and the ministries in church but serving out there with non-Christians and Christians alike and helping them prepare for something that to every single human being is scary but helping them see that actually with a hope in God this isn't it and that you can have a talk about the good death and a good death is one where somebody's prepared. And so my role is to help that person have a good death where you're prepared for whatever it is that God is going to do. And a lot of the time you come across people who, if, if we've walked them through that journey properly, especially as Christians, if you've walked them through that journey properly, when they get to that point, it's not this um, feverish holding on to life. There's almost like a, a peace that comes that actually I know that I know that there's a hope beyond the grave. And so that's my role is to help people see that and recognize that and bring peace into what is really a difficult time in someone's life. Mm. You mentioned it was a calling for you. You've sensed a real um, lead from God to get into that work. How do you juggle those two components of serving people with the faith and outer worldview that they've got, but also yourself as a Christian, like you said, not just believing in the reality or possibility of healing, but also in the reality of judgment after death. That's something that often Christians feel quite a keen tension, letting someone go to God without, you know, without hearing or knowing the gospel fully. No doubt you'll have wrestled with that throughout your life. Can you share some reflections on that? Um, so, like I said, I always felt that I was called to, to this role. And so every single patient that I had, I would actually, maybe not every single, that's probably, you know, whenever I get the prompting for it, I would pray for that patient. So my work was very much community-based. So I would drive up to the house and I would just sit there for a bit and say, Lord, whatever it is you want to use me to do in this house, please use me. Now, you know that as, um, as a nurse, you cannot share your faith overtly. Um, and it's like that in many public sectors. But there are ways, God, and, and I often used to pray, God, give me wisdom in whatever I do and say in that place. So, for example, when I go to a new patient and we're doing a new person's assessment, there's always a bit there that says religion. So I'll say, what is your religion? And they might say, oh, I don't believe in that stuff. Or, or... And often when they say, I don't believe in that stuff, I will 
probably pause and say something like, wow. And it's really true. I will say to them, I don't know how you're walking this journey without a hope in God. And I'll leave it at that. And I think you, you can drop li little nuggets that God has laid on your heart to just, just enough for that person to think a bit more deeply. As a person comes to the end of their life, they do think about the, other, the afterlife. Even, when that, even though that person has professed not believing in anything, when they get to that point, there is, that, that, there is always something in their eyes or in their voice or, or when they ask me questions that I know that they're now thinking, have I got this thing right or wrong? If they ask me questions, I answer them. Um, if they don't, I try and find something in the general conversation to drop in. I never hide the fact that I'm a Christian. I never hide the fact that I'm praying for them. I never hide the fact that if you want to know more, please ask me. You know, if I went to them on a Monday and they said to me, what did you do on your weekend? I will always say I went to church. The same way if somebody, you know, went to the gym, they'll be very free to discuss what they did at the gym. So it's always them giving me an opening. And then I, my part is to pray that I get that opening and then God gives me the wisdom to speak. Um, there are occasions where one person in the family is a Christian and that is just brilliant because we can um, agree together and pray. And I have seen deathbed conversions. So there is never a, I never think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just preparing them for death and never think about the afterlife. It's always there on my mind. Is there anything I can do to lead this person to Christ? And even as somebody, you know, they often say the last hearing to go is, the last um, sense to go is your hearing. And so even if I'm with them on my own, I will be praying. <laughs> and I hope you no one's recording me. Anyway, no one caught me, so I haven't got But <laughs> <laughs> well, I could just pray quietly for them. That's what I can bring to that person at that point in time. Um, you mentioned that people wrestle with these things and think about these things approaching death. Um, I, see, I, I've I've heard a lot of friends of mine who work in palliative care say that they've often struggled with the opposite, that they felt that people, they're not as open as they thought. They do seem to hold on to their secular secular worldview quite a lot. Um, have you noticed what goes on and what goes through a person's heart and mind when they do approach those things? And what is a good death? Because you mentioned that your, your job is to help someone have a good death. Um, I think it just differs for, for different people. There's some people who want to die with lots of people around them. There's some people who want to die in quiet. There's some people who want to die at home. I think a good death is talking to somebody about what their wishes are towards end of life. So sort of having an advanced care plan is what they call it. Um, and as much as possible helping them to achieve that plan. So if that person wanted to die at home with their family around it, my job is to make sure that I, whatever I can do to enable that is a good death. So that would be a good death in sort of the um, world's view. But I think as a Christian, a good death is, is, is dying, having known and accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord mm. and Savior. And it, a good death presumably, I guess, involves reducing a lot of discomfort and pain as people approach death and I remember hearing someone talk about the origins of the hospice care um, movement um, that be was begun by a Christian is that right? Yeah so Dame Cicely Saunders I think in the 60s was the fact she founded the first hospice which was St Christopher's in London um, so the whole ethos behind the hospice movement is very Christian um, and as it has evolved, it's, so initially you would go, most hospices are sent something, St. Christopher's, St. Joseph's, you know, it's all Bible Christian based um, and would often, they used to have a chapel 
and they'd have a, 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 um, a chaplain and stuff like that. These days they have a, uh, a room of quiet and you have a spiritual care coordinator. But yeah, the origins are very much about um, alleviating suffering. Um, and that's, you know, I think it, when she saw how people were dying and they were dying in squalor and in pain, and that's what just moved that actually this is not Christ-like at all. We need to do something. And then, yeah, evolved from there. Um, could you help those of us who, who are listening, who who may never have seen a dead body and are just quite afraid of those moments as someone approaches death, help us understand what happens naturally, but then also spiritually, um, what there is or isn't to be afraid of. Um, normalize something that for us, if you can, it is normal, like you said, it happens to all of us, but it's something that is so kept in the shadows of our society and life that people don't think about it only with something that scares them. Um, could you help us understand that or work that one through? Yeah, um, so I'll give you, I'll give you a, a quick story. So when I first of all started training as a nurse, I trained in Guildford and um, you get sent to the wards for your nurse practice or whatever your, your practice. So you do sort of the theory and then you go to the wards and you do. And I remember being on this ward and a man was dying and I had never been close to a dead body before, it, you know. And I remember the sister in the, in, on the ward said, go and sit with that man, he's dying. And I was absolutely, I know, petrified. I was so scared. Um, and so I sat with him and he made all these weird sounds and his breathing was awful. And bear in mind, you know, I was a very young nurse, a young, you know, young girl as well. And I sat there, you know, really just not wanting to look at this man. I, I, I just didn't really want to be anywhere near there. But sister had said, you have to sit there. So I sat there. And um, what I thought was his last breath, I then sort of turned around and then I, he sort of took another breath and it really it frightened the life out of me. So I ran out of the, out of the curtainy bit and the sister said, yelled at me and told me to get right back in there. And this was not, not very helpful. Um, <laughs> and, and the guy, he, he kind of, he died. And I sat there for a bit thinking, has he gone or has he not gone? And I waited for quite a while and I realized I think he has gone and then I didn't know what to do. And I remember, you know, in, in, in my nursing hostel, we used to talk about all kinds of things about night, people seeing night, Florence Nightingale with the lamp walking down. It was just scary stories. And somebody had said, when someone dies, what you, the first thing you have to do is open the windows. You have to open the windows to let the spirit out. So, <laughs> so I opened the windows. It was in the middle of winter. The whole ward is now freezing. Sister comes in, yells at me, saying, what on earth are you doing? I said, I opened the windows to let the spirit out. And she just took one look at me and she must have thought, you mad African <laughs> woman, what on earth <laughs> But I tell that story because even as somebody who's gone into nursing, I've never really experienced death before. So what does it, you know, it's, yeah, breathing does get very shallow. It can be quite loud. Um, but I think the important thing is if somebody, if you're explained these are the things to look out for, then it doesn't scare you. And it can be quite a lovely, just peaceful time. They don't, you know, a, a dead, as a person who's dying, they don't change color, they don't morph into anything different. Um, and I'm talking about maybe sort of this sort of 
in the hospice or at home, not, not sort of traumatic deaths and things like that. And it really is a gentle passing away of the breathing just getting shallower and something what they call chain stoking. So you stop breathing, then you breathe again, and then you start. And that's what happened with this guy. He had took one breath and then there was a big gap between the next breath and then the next. And it can sound a bit gurgly, um, but it's nothing to be frightened about. And um, after a person has died, their spirit has left the body and what you're left with is an mm. empty shell. What, uh, what is the death rattle that people talk about? The death rattle is very, it's just, um, it's, it's saliva just collecting at the base of the throat. And as the person is breathing, you're just kind of, it's a bit like blowing air through a straw into a glass of water, that bubbly thing you get. So saliva's pulled at the bottom as they've laid down and as they're breathing, they're just trying to breathe through it. And that is really all it is. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Because I think that's a phrase that people sometimes hear and don't know what it means. Uh, it sounds pretty scary, but it's something that happens naturally, um, like you said. Yeah. yeah. Um, there are there are other you know it's interesting you know we 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 make you make light of and laugh about the opening of the window to let the spirit out but um of course there's no reason why that would be funny it's just from our western scientific way of thinking we think that that's a strange practice so talk to us about what happens next after a person dies you're there and their breathing's become shallow the death rattles ended um and and then you've pronounced them as dead what happens next Okay, so um, I think maybe just to, to, to skip back a little bit to before death. So there's a lot of work that you do pre-death with families. And so that's where you explain to them what the person's likely to do as they're dying, what's normal, what's not normal. Um, so bereavement work starts before. It's not just something you do when, as you know, after the person has died. Um, and so once they've died, I check their vital signs. As a nurse then, I wasn't allowed to certify death, but that's changed slightly. Now you can do a course to be able to do it. So I have to call the GP. Um, and as long as the GP is aware, so it cannot be the first, you know, a person needs to have been seen by the GP two, two weeks prior. So the GP needs to be aware that the person is deteriorating from the GP and then he will come and certify the death. And then, you know, they just have to go and register it with the council and stuff like that. And I'll probably leave them with information about funeral directors, but these tend to be things that I would have probably prepared the, pet, the family with prior to. So it's not some, so after death, really it's concentrating on helping them through their loss and helping them grieve well. Um, I would, if I'm in the house, then I would tend to just leave very quietly and let the family have a private time. And then I will then come back um, and then just check on them and then work through sort of the post-death bereavement. Um, post mm -hmm. And what about when it comes to what, what to talk about or not talk about, what to say, not say? Because I think one of the things that fills people with a lot of fear is um, saying the wrong thing or yeah. feeling uncomfortable around someone's grief. Um, what what comment would you have on those yeah. sorts of statements? Uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think that is probably one of the things where we might get it wrong. Um, so my mum died when I was in my 30s. So she died, she was 56, sudden death. We weren't prepared. I was, she was not, I hadn't, due to some, you know, uh, issues, I hadn't actually seen my mum for about 10 years prior to her death. 
So I'm at home and I get a phone call from my brother who's in Nigeria and he's asking for my husband, Toppy. Now, these are the days when we didn't have phone, uh, mobile phones. And I'm like, Toppy was working, he was on call that night. It must've been about seven, 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 half past seven. And um, he kept saying, you know, is Toppy there, is Toppy there? And I said, no, what is it? And I think he just didn't know what to do. And he said, mom is dead, mom is dead. And I, till today, I can hear that voice ringing in my head, mom is dead. Now I'm glad he, didn't use any euphemisms. I'm glad he didn't say, you know, she's gone to be with the Lord. I'm glad he used the word dead because I got it. Um, and I remember at that point, just putting the phone down, I had the two small boys at home and I was just disorientated. I really was. And I phoned Toppy and I said, um, I've just got a phone call from Nigeria. I've, my mom's just died. And he was miles away. Um, and he said, right, call, call at the time at the church we were going to, he said, call the pastors wife will call the pastor and so I put I, I, I phoned them and I said I don't know what to do my mom has died um my sister wasn't my siblings weren't in the country either so I was pretty much on my own and the pastor's wife then said oh yeah I'll, I'll come down and um I remember just sitting there just really feeling really lost in my thoughts I, I I just felt really disorientated and the boys were and I was crying as well and the boys were probably you know they were quite young and they were looking at me going mom what's the matter what's the matter and um so this this person came to the door she rang the bell and I opened the door and I and she said oh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry are you okay and I, I mean, when you say are you okay you just go yeah and I went yeah she said okay good because I, I, I need to be at small group <laughs> and <laughs> gave me a hug and closed the door and I was there on my own just you know just didn't know what to do until Toppy got home um I tell that story just to say sometimes we just don't understand how to deal with death I know gosh <laughs> those of you listening Jess is just shaking his head <laughs> I cannot believe that sorry Sorry about that. I got, <laughs> no warning shot there. Um, and it can be awkward. I think it can be awkward when you're dealing with somebody who's just lost someone dear to them. But at that point in time, what I needed more than anything was company. Not even the words. It wasn't about the words you were going to say. It's not about the Bible verses because those can sound, you know, the Bible verses are truth. At that point in time, I can't hear them as truth. Does that make sense? It's difficult to, comp you know, it's just what, what I needed was someone to sit with me, help me put the kids to bed and just let me grieve. Um, and so I think for my personal experience, the best thing is if you don't know what, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss, that's fine. But don't try and say the person is in a better place, they're no longer in pain. These things are true. But at that point in time, it's so difficult to hear words like that. Um, and it was sad to say, actually, once the word news got out that my mom had died, I got lots of phone calls and cards and things like that. But it was my work colleagues that actually came into the house and sat with me. A lot of my Christian friends were just, it was just awkward. Um, and I remember the first Sunday I went back to church, it was just, it was just painful because no one, you know, people in a way almost pretended as if nothing had happened. 
to other people who just say, oh, hi, and other people like, you okay? And, and it was just that kind of awkwardness that was going on. And I remember not being able to sit through the service and I thought, you know, I need to get out. So I got up and I left and this old lady ran after me and she, she caught me in the car park and she put her hands around me and that spoke volumes to me. She didn't have to say much. She just put her arms around me and says, you know, I'm here for you. And she just, and that was it. And so the right things to say, there is never a right thing to say, but there are wrong things to say. And I, and I think if you don't know what to say, then really just let that person know that you're there for them. And don't just say, oh, I'm here for you. Find practical ways that you can be there for that person. And, you know, if you, I mean, one of the things I missed more than anything was community. You know, my, my, my siblings weren't around. My church friends just seemed to be, you know, I suppose they were all just as young as I was and probably didn't know how to deal with someone whose mom has just died. Um, so I'm helping that, you know, for as many people are listening to this, you know, it's actually don't be a stranger, even if you don't know what to say or how awkward that thing is going to be. It is going to be awkward, but just be there for that person. And it's not just in the first few days and weeks, I suppose. It's something that um, and that's where I think that the challenge is I find it as a pastor, I can be there for the first few weeks months but then having to remind myself it doesn't it's not over you know there's still a long process of grief and the need to to still maintain involvement uh, is that something you'd say almost how how long does someone i guess it, it's a open it's a, as long as a piece of string but how long does the initial stage of shock and pain and grief last with a person there is no time scale that's the honest truth it just depends on the relationship that person had to the person who died it depends whether that relationship was a complicated one which it was in my case um, it depends on that person's social um, social network as well so somebody who is on their own probably needs a lot more support than somebody who's got quite a healthy social network around them um, so there's no time scale for grief but as a pastor um, so what, what we would do in Jubilee is obviously, I mean, we were at a funeral yesterday of somebody who died suddenly um, and just really being there almost every, not there physically, but a phone call, a text message, um, checking a bunch of flowers in the first two weeks coming up to the, the, the funeral. So we've had the funeral. I'm going to check in again because often it's after the funeral, everyone disappears. You know, funerals done and the phone calls stop and, and things like that. So after the funeral, I'll make sure that I check in with that person to make sure they're OK, because they had two um, teenage uh, children as well. Um, and then a month after and then three months after and then a year after. So it's about marking it. If you've got a, a PA, mark those deaths in the diary so that when it comes up to it, send them a card and a bunch of flowers. And it just help them, helps them recognise that actually they're not forgotten. And I think also for, you know, maybe elderly people that we have in our congregation who are spouses is gone. That's quite a very isolating time for that person. And so just knowing that somebody there remembers is, is quite good. And don't say, sorry, I've got to get to my small group. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. It was, I uh, that. It was not a good moment. <laughs> it's, I think part of the... Part of the issue maybe we have is we live in a in a wordy society that thinks 
you need to have words of wisdom, you need to know what to say all the time. And we downplay the importance of presence and the gift that you are as a human being, silent, not saying anything. The gift of just sitting there in someone's home, letting your tea go cold as you kind of just stare into the middle distance so that they know you're you're there embodied, Absolutely. living that moment with them. I mean, if Job's friends kept quiet, it would have been helpful. You know, if they just, you know, it, I think the helpful bits were where they sat with him in silence. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's just sometimes you, you don't have to say much. Mm. I know there's often people trying to understand the relationship they have with the bereaved. Um, I, I, do I know this person well enough to go around their house or, or to pop in or to say anything? People often think, oh, I don't know what's expected of me. Um, do, would you say it's always better to... To not overstep but would you say it's always better to to do more than you would think is appropriate in sense of is it okay to knock on someone's door or would you always say no just a phone call is okay are there any kind of just practical emotional intelligence tips on <laughs> on that help help us out <laughs> I, I think it's okay to oh um, i think it's probably i would err on the side of over rather than under because they will tell you actually i'm okay no need to pop around and don't take it offensively but when you underdo it then that's where the that feeling of being left alone carries on for a long time so I would say always err on the side of yes go and knock the door you know and I know we live in a culture where it's very everyone's very private um and maybe there's some cultural aspect to it as well whereas because in uh, I'm Nigerians and 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 we you know death isn't your when someone dies everyone comes over so they come over and they sit and they cook and they do and they just let you cry. And that's the other thing is that you need to be, you know, that person who's just lost somebody has to be in touch with their emotion. They have to allow themselves to grieve for that person. Um, and when family come around, they allow you to grieve. They're not coming around and saying, no, 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 stop that now. No, they will allow you to grieve and just be there as a presence. If mm. you need to. Mm. So as a nurse, after after a body's died and you've certified the death and then left the house, um, what are some of the stages then that the family enter into in um, in grief? I know people talk about a grief cycle. Is that helpful to even think in terms of a grief cycle or not? There are lots of theories of grief out there. So you've got uh, Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief that goes through uh, denial. You're picking my brains here. Denial, anger, bargaining, acceptance. Uh, no bargaining, depression, and then acceptance, and it's written. It's almost drawn as a you will go through one stage after the other. Or you've got other theories, like I think there's the um, uh, there's one where people sort of bounce backwards and forwards. And theories are helpful, and they give you some kind of reference point to know what to expect. But like I said, no two people grieve in the same way. So some people might you know, be angry first before they come to the point of, of, of denial or whatever it is. And a lot of the theories that we have out there were actually um, done on a very small number of people, on a very select white middle-class uh, study group. So it's not always applicable in every situation. However, there are things that you know are common. And so anger is common denial oh I can't believe this has happened um you know depression is common um and then at, but at some point 
a person who is grieving well comes to the point of accept, acceptance and adjusting to the loss. And what that means is that, you know, you never lose the memory of the person. You never, I mean, there are times, you know, my mom's been dead now for quite a long time. And there are times when the grief just catches me unawares and I just find myself back there. But it doesn't mean it's not unusual. It is quite usual actually. Um, so, and sometimes people just bounce between one and the other, one and the other. So one minute you're okay. And then the next minute you're not okay. And it's really just giving people time to just deal with it in their own way. Um, having said that, there are things we call complicated grief where a person gets stuck in grief. And it's probably helpful to know that there is such a thing where after, a, so maybe if somebody hasn't re-entered society, so you've grieved for a bit, but they've not been able to go back to work. They've not been able to come back to church. They haven't been able to in, you know, enjoy the things that they used to enjoy. If they're talking about suicide, for instance, so those are some, of indi some indicators that this person is probably stuck in, in a process of grief. Um, because normally you kind of bounce from one to the other, or you go from one to the other. And then after a while, the intensity of the emotions lessen, but beware, because every now and again, birthdays, Christmases, um, even sometimes if I go into the shop and I see a mother and a daughter, and it might be something I've seen before, and all of a sudden I just get a lump in my throat and I just, you know, I'm just like, oh my goodness, I, I almost feel like I'm grieving again. But all those things are normal because, you know, we're not living in this world where you're not going to encounter things that are going to trigger memories. Um, but it's how you engage with, with, with life after a person's death. Mm. That's really helpful. I mean, you mentioned there that about the, the study groups being largely white, middle class or white, whatever. There, there is a kind of um anecdotally if you like the stereotypical british stiff upper lip is quite emotionally repressed and fears strong i say the word negative strong painful emotions like um, sadness and despair um what are some critiques that you'd offer or some advice you'd give on just how to have a, a more i guess culturally diverse and holistic appreciation of emotion and the way that it's healthy and it's okay to experience different things or some of your observations as a Nigerian coming to England going and you guys really are repressed you really do need to you know feel this this is your chance to basically go at the English <laughs> no I wouldn't I wouldn't um having said that uh, <laughs> yeah I, I think this whole idea that you know man up I don't like that that statement um you know you know you're a man so don't 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 show your emotions or 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 I think what that has done is made everyone uncomfortable with emotions um and I, I you know but I think deep down most people want like you said you know he said enough said but you didn't want to stop there and I think that's what that's a big takeaway actually that most people actually do want to go there and we've just we've just been taught or almost you know the english have just been taught to 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 sort of keep keep your emotions hide your emotions but that's not been healthy from what i've observed it's not been healthy there has to be an outlet on the other hand you can have sort of and i'm not you know i'm not going to english bash here um because actually sort of the african way of displaying you know emotions too sometimes can be unhelpful because there is a difference between grief and mourning okay so mourning is the outward expression of the grief that you're feeling on the inside 
So you might be grieving just as much as person A might be grieving just as much as person B, but the way that you express that grief is very different from the way that person B expresses their grief. At the same time, person B might not be not be experiencing grief, but are expressing this kind of, does that mean, so in Africa, you have the crying ladies. So you, there are some cultures where someone has died and you hire these people and they do the mourning for you and they're not grieving. But when you came as a Westerner and you saw those people crying, you'd be like, my goodness, what has happened? But at the same time, if, if, if somebody came to England and saw that the person who's just lost somebody is not crying, they might think, oh, why is that person not crying? So it's, it's you know, it's about the person's personality. So if you know that person and you know their personality and you know that they're very expressive and now someone has died and they're, they're showing no emotion, now that's odd. And at the same time, you've got somebody who probably is, you know, not expressive, but is probably being forced to be expressive, if that makes sense. Then, so it's about knowing the person and knowing, but I think for all of us, you know, when you've lost somebody, it's really important to actually come to terms with it and recognize it and allow yourself to grieve in whatever way you want to grieve. Mm, that's really helpful. Uh, I mean, I've, I've thought before about the, the practice of hiring professional mourners in some cultures. Um, and I, the distinction between grief and mourning is really helpful. I've not heard that before. But I can imagine having never been to a funeral where there is a professional mourner or someone who's crying, um, who's been paid to do that. I can imagine there must be some benefit to that because it, it would, I guess, honour the person who's died by showing, I mean, on, on a superficial level, perhaps not because they didn't know the individual, but it honours their value to us, saying they're so valuable, you know, we're going to make a lot of noise about this. And perhaps the presence of a crying person... Uh, and enables and allows the other mourners to express their own grief is that how it works is that the thinking behind it yeah it's very much around this person is so valued you're right that this person is so valued so you know it, it's just part of it's just part of the culture and you get people together and they mourn and we know that it, you know it's kind of a show but it's showing how much we value that person and then letting them go for it and I must say that actually when I went back to Nigeria to bury my mum they did have some professional mourners I found it very uncomfortable I'm like you don't know her mm. um so it can go one way or the other but then I, I was probably coming from a sort of a western mindset but I just had to allow that aspect of culture to take place and and there are people who found it really helpful and also it's almost announcing to the area that somebody important or someone that you value has died um because they're mourning and they're crying and there's the drums and there's a quite it's a bit it's a bit loud <laughs> you mentioned the phrase there about man up um that you don't like uh i i've and i'm just curious and this may be too um culturally stereotyped or, or narrow but is there a i've often thought of nigerian men particularly as being very strong and emotionally together but is there a culture of freedom of expressing emotions among nigerian men that english men don't so man up is that an is that a an english phrase or is that cross-cultural in the way that men approach grief what are some of the ways that men in different cultures are allowed or not allowed to grieve would you say which is a big question <laughs> that is a big question honestly because only yesterday i was on um because I do a bit of bereavement volunteering and I was on a training day and somebody was actually saying that, you know, for him in his culture, you're supposed to kind of be a man and not ask for help. That was, that was, you know, you don't ask for help. And, and then another guy was like, well, I do, you know, I can and I do ask for help. I think Nigerian men, yeah, they are tough and that, you know, and you are taught to be a man, but when it comes to death and dying, 
then you are allowed to show your emotions. Um, I think it's really difficult to, to put a label on any one particular person. I think it's just, I think, I suppose when I said I don't like the word man up is that when a person actually needs to show emotion, but can't because he feels that if I show emotion, I'm not being a man. And I think there's a danger in that in so many other areas as well, not just in death and dying, that actually if you're feeling sad, then, you know, show that um and not feel that i have to hold this thing in because it's not culturally acceptable mm. yeah i guess the, the the cultures create a prevailing pressure either in england towards suppressing emotion and not showing it or in africa perhaps towards expressing it but the, what you're saying is it's actually the importance of the individual to grieve deeply and properly for themselves in a way that is you know um honest for them yeah um I like the I like the the different theories of grief as you're talking uh, uh, gr the grief cycle. It strikes me that that is less of a cycle, perhaps, and more of a pinball game. You kind of just fly around from different emotions um, and different parts of that cycle. Um, what are some of the ways that um, you you talk a bit more, I guess, about complicated grief, if you can? How someone you mentioned can tell that they're perhaps stuck, they're not re-entering society. Um, what are some of the ways that you help people through? complicated grief or you give advice to people who are stuck um when if some if i if i identify that i think this person's probably got complicated grief i'm i'm not a trained counselor and i think what that person needs is actually a trained if they're a christian they need a trained christian counselor and so i would tend to refer back and say actually this person needs a bit more help than i can give them because it really is needs to be seen as a mental health thing um, so especially somebody, you know, I mean, there are some sort of flags. So if a person has, you know, suicide is a big one. If somebody close to someone has committed suicide, it would be something that I would refer straight away because that kind of death always leads to complicated grief. Um, also, if the person's relationship, if the person has already got substance abuse or has got serious mental health conditions, there are cases like that. that I'm, so personally, I would probably not deal with it myself because I don't feel qualified to and refer it on uh, to, to a professional. Mm. Um, what are the particulars of suicide as different from other forms of death that create a different experience of grief because that's increasingly tragically common um could you talk a bit more about how losing someone to suicide is different and feels different for the people who died um, yeah well not only not only is it sudden um so it's something that you know even if the person has been struggling with suicidal thoughts before um it, it still comes as a big shock but also people often see it can see it as um, that selfish of that person um, and why have they let you know because that person has willingly taken their own life and then if they are Christians that creates all kinds of difficulties around the taking of like their own life and that you know because Chris, there are Christians that have committed suicide you know in fact you know even prominent Christians who had have committed suicide so that leaves a lot of questions for the person that is left behind um, so it's never an easy it's never an easy I mean no death is easy but I think a death by suicide is particularly difficult on the family 
that is left behind and also the mode you know death by suicide is not a gentle calm you often think what was that person's thought process for them to do it there's a lot of things tied into that so I think it's just something that um, I think as Christian leaders or elders we just need to be aware of I mean we had somebody in our church whose son committed suicide I've had a friend at work whose son who walked in and found her son hanging I mean you know straight away that grief is going to be complicated and so as uh, as a friend or as, a, as a, a church leader you're there for them but you definitely need to get that person professional help mm. I don't suppose any death you ever really get over uh, I can imagine with suicide when you lose somebody to suicide it's that much more complicated um what's the what's the you know in, in after losing your mum uh, what's the point at which you realize I think I've I think I've come to terms with this now and this grief is over does grief ever end um uh, how do you integrate it into your life those sorts of things how do you know when you're done <laughs> with with accepting or something do you know what I mean yeah I don't I don't think you're ever done sorry um I don't think you're ever done I think you just get to the point where you can get back to work I think rituals like burials help are very helpful um things like having a routine in life are quite helpful as well um so I don't think you ever <laughs> I think you learn to cope with it I think that's it you learn to deal with it you learn to carry on living um and you learn to accept those feelings so whenever I, you know if it's my mom's birthday or if it's her anniversary of her death I will often let my husband know and let the kids know so that they are just a bit they, they just don't try not to annoy me <laughs> just not tiptoe around me but they understand if I'm quiet they understand if I withdraw a little bit but then I then re-enter life again in, in that kind of way um so I don't think you ever ever get over it I think you just get used to managing your grief um and adjusting to a new a new a new normal as they say mm, yeah that's yeah. really helpful I guess you you integrate it into your life as a part of life. Um, the, the old you that wasn't that hadn't lost that individual is gone, and it's a new new you who's got that part of reality uh, as a, a kind of common experience. You talked a bit about routine. Uh, how important is routine with helping encourage someone to come to terms with loss and and process their grief? Um, I think routine is hugely important. If, in fact, even immediately after the death of the person, if I didn't have the boys that I had to get up for and do stuff with and feed and, and just get do life, um, I think it's very easy to just stay in bed and not want to get up or anything like that. So I think routine, um, just having also one of the things that make, can make some people's grief quite complicated is if that is always just been the two of them. And they've had nothing and no one else around them. And I remember nursing a, a chap where the lady was, you know, they were married, they had no children, they had no family, they, there was no one, they didn't talk to the neighbours. And I thought, okay, this is going to be difficult because when he dies, you know, she's going to really feel it. Um, because there was nobody to actually get them to re-enter life, as it were. And I was actually right. I was right in that case because I remember her saying to me, when he goes, I'm going to kill myself. And I thought, oh, please don't. You know, this, this, is, this is, and I tried to help as best I could. But then I remember going back to the office and, and reporting this to the social worker saying, actually, this woman needs a lot of support. Um, and they were they began to work with her before the guy died um and no matter how many times I said to her is there anybody that we can call to come and sit with you there was absolutely nobody anyway the chap died 
And um, I got a phone call to say that she'd taken all his morphine that was left over to try and overdose herself. Um, and because she just had nothing to live for. There was nothing, you know, so I think the importance of, I mean, for us in church, the importance of having a church family that keeps that routine there for you. You've got Sunday as a routine. You've got getting up every morning as a routine. There are little things that you need to build into life that help you kind of re-enter life, as it were, post that person's death. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I loved your phrase earlier that, that death isn't the end, it's a bend. Um, <laughs> Not original with me, I don't think. I don't know where I picked that one no, up. No, it is, it is from now on, Kemi. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to quote that as Kemi Colioso says. <laughs> um, what, what do you think and what do you pick up from Scripture? What happens at the moment an individual dies and their body has um, stopped working? Um, what's your theology of what happens next? Can you talk to us a bit about that? If you're, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm much more able to do the whole theology of, of what happens after death and stuff like that than I am. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you know, this body is a shell. We all know that. And so your spirit leaves and I, you know, I don't understand the whole ins and outs. I'll speak to Phil more about this. He knows more about this than I do. <laughs> We've got you, Kemi. Oh, we're happy with you. <laughs> but I know that, you know, um, God promises us eternity and we go to dwell with him and he promises a new body as well. So we're not going to take this raggedy old body to heaven. We're going to take a new, for those who've given their life to Christ, we're taking, we're going to get a new body um, and we get to reign with him in eternity. And that is our hope. You know, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. You've heard that several times at funerals, but you know what that really means is that we yes we grieve because we miss the person but we know that you know if they die in Christ that there is a hope beyond the grave and that is eternity with Jesus Christ and we have just a glimpse of what that is like here on earth as Christians um and so you look forward to I don't know what it's going to I mean people talk about mansions I don't I don't know what's going to happen in heaven but all I know is that it's going to be so much better than what's going on here on earth and Yes, we want to live out our days, you know, for as long as as possible. Um, But at the same time, we cannot live life with this kind of, this is it, the earth is it. You have to live it with a consciousness that actually beyond the grave, there's so much more in store for us that God has for us to be able to. And, you know, you read the scriptures and when I read the scriptures, I I see a picture of, of, you know, just total peace. I see a picture of joy. I see a picture of, you know, reigning with Christ forever. And so I think as a palliative care professional, that being so close to death has helped me actually appreciate life, but also live with a sense of my own mortality and a sense of there is so much more than this earth that God is promising us and not to fear death. And that's what it means not to fear death, that yes, death might come at, you know, it's not to embrace death, you know, palliative care does not embrace death, what it does is it affirms it, and I think as Christians as well, death is still, you know, is, 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 is a bad thing, as in, you know, it's the enemy that brought death, but we don't fear it, we, we, we understand that is now part, you know, you can't live life, you can't focus on, on life without having death in your perspective, You've got to be able to live this life knowing that actually this isn't it. And when you know that there is something better beyond, then it helps you live this life with gratitude, with thankfulness, with a sense of, you know, whilst I'm here, 
life is short. Whilst I'm here, Lord, use me and don't let my whatever years God has in store for me be a waste. And so wherever it is that I am planted, my prayers always, you know, in fact, no matter what, you know, within palliative care, I've worked in the hospice, I've worked in, um, in, in the community. And every time I say, Lord, I know you have a, an assignment for me in this place. Let me achieve that. Let me be that person. I think for all of us, no matter where you work, to know that we're here for such a short period of time and there's a, an assignment that God has given to us. And whether you're a teacher or, 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 or you're working as a cleaner, have that consciousness that, Lord, what do you want me to do in this place? Who have you planted me here for? And whichever house I walk into, my prayer is, Lord, let me deposit something of you in this house. And that along the way, somewhere, maybe they switch the television on and they hear a sermon, but somehow that the dots, dots get connected and it leads them to you. So all of us need to live with that consciousness that actually we're here and we have you know god has given us a mandate to you know something to do on earth and let's do it and let's not waste this precious life that we have oh man fantastic uh, i mean i and a lot of that comes back around to almost how we started where you you talked about the confidence in the sovereignty of god uh, over all things which actually takes the pressure off you needing to be the person to save those individuals. It means that it frees you up to use the gifts that God's given you to you know, attend to someone in a time of need rather than be their personal Lord and Saviour who gets them across the line, makes them pray a prayer, brings them to Christ. Actually, it's trying to hold that tension between I long for them to come to Christ, but God is sovereign. <laughs> he knows, you know, he knows what he's doing with this individual and I've got to trust him, partner with him and almost not run ahead of of what God gives you grace for or permission to do. If you're there as a professional nurse in a professional uh, auspice, you need to operate within those boundaries as sensitive and as faithfully as you can, which is really helpful. Um, just as we kind of draw things to to close where does your confidence come that you know that after death you're going to know peace rather than fear and judgment my confidence comes from the word of god 100 percent. you <laughs> i'm teeing you up i'm teeing you up preaches the gospel kemi um you know i i i love the word i really do love reading the word of god and i want to say to anyone out there you cannot, you know, confidence in this life that is not confidence at all. You have to have confidence in the word of God. And so when I read the word of God and I read things that say, you know, that so we're going to reign with him in eternity, I believe it 100%. I might not understand everything, but I know enough of the character of God to know that what God says is true and he is a good, good God. And that's where my confidence comes from, that everything I read about God says that he is a good God and so because he's a good God he's going to do good by me and the only way that you can know that is reading the word for yourself I mean it's, in, it's okay to listen to sermons and to to read books that are explaining the word of God but you cannot get away from actually delving into the word yourself and because it just gives you such a, a breath of God's character and so when I read about this good God, I mean, the, the other day I was reading the story of Joseph and, and um, just some of the things that he went through. And at the end of his days, he never lost his faith. In fact, you know, he's mentioned in, in, in Hebrews 11 there. And just all these um, men and women of faith, they didn't have things easy. But at the end of the day, God saw them through. And so the more that I 
learn from that, the more confidence I have that actually, little old me, God has got me in the palm of his hands. There is, you know, I know his word, I know his word to be true. And so I stand on the word of God and I'm, I'm by God's grace, I will not waver from it. And so my confidence is totally 100% in God's word and understanding it and feeding on it daily. Because there are things in life that make you, that would shake your faith. But unless you're feeding on God's word daily, um, you're, if you're not feeding God's with it, you're more likely to, 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 you know, to just waver a little bit. But, but having said that, there are times when, when I was walking through grief, it was difficult to read God's word. But what sustained me was God's word that was in me. That even if I can't quote the Bible verses verbatim or, or whatever, I knew that God said that he would not leave me nor forsake me. So that kept me in good stead. Mm, that's good. The image of, you know, consuming protein builds muscle and the muscle's there, even if you have days where you don't eat any protein, because once the muscle's there, it's there to stay. Um, and that's really helpful. And, and and actually, you know, we talk about reading the word of God as being important for the Christian life. And uh, I know last time you, you gave us just a brilliant description of how you have your quiet time each day. In fact, you called yourself a bit of a geek. So, uh, <laughs> which, uh, um but it's actually what I'm hearing today is just this understanding that it is getting confidence in the word of God that doesn't just help us live now, but prepares us for what we know is inevitable, that we will face our end. And, you know, for many of us, it will be a sickness rather than a sudden death, a sickness whereby we have to come to terms with our own mortality. And at that point, um, that's when you're going to start to see the kind of confidence you've got in the word of God. And it is the word of God that can help us give us that confidence that, that death is a bend rather than an end and something that we can, rather than fear, we see as a doorway into the yeah. fuller presence of God. And I, I think the onus is also on pastors and leaders to make sure that when we're preaching, that we preach the full gospel and not just this kind of triumphalistic type of message, but also preach messages that are hard to hear, preach messages that, you know, are, are messages of suffering um it, they have to go hand in hand and once people are, are versed in that kind of understanding of God when it comes to those hard seasons that word and that understanding is already there so you're not having to now start saying to that person who's you know facing the loss of a loved one that actually you know suffering is part of life you know that's not the time to do that the time to do it is actually when there is probably no suffering so that you are building that person up for the time where because we know that in this world it says we will you know we will face tribulation and trials um but we are so sanitized sometimes that we you know when the trials come you're like ah yeah that's really good yeah <laughs> And it's that image that Noah had to build the boat before the rain came. It would have been yeah. it would have been no good to carry to be building it when the rains were absolutely starting. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, so Kemi, thanks so much for your time today, for your wisdom. Uh, is there any kind of I don't know, just nugget of um, what what you'd say in your end of life care uh, comments and teaching that you haven't had a chance to share today that you'd like to put across as we finish? Um, maybe to leave you with this one: as a Christian, you you face you deal with death and you face death differently. Um, the Bible says, teach us to number our days that we might apply our heart to wisdom. Um, and for all of us it's about, Lord, teach us that this life is short and help us to apply wisdom in everything that we do. Um, and so for whether you've lost someone or, or, or maybe you've never faced loss before, like I started, when I started, I said, you know, it's something that is gonna to come to all of us, but actually, the Bible is already preparing us 
And, you know, you can't get away from the fact that, yes, we, our days are numbered, but God teach us to number so that we can apply our heart to wisdom. So actually let our hearts be wise in what we say and what we do. And maybe you're facing an illness right now and maybe the, the, the prognosis is not being good. Keep praying, but also ask God for wisdom as to how you navigate this. And for, you know, for those of us who might maybe on, you know, there are people who are nursing people who are dying. Um, again, it's Lord, give me wisdom because it's not easy. I pray for wisdom every single day and every single day I went out and saw patients, I prayed for wisdom. And I think it's something that maybe we don't do enough of. Um, and so maybe that's a good place to leave it, that actually God is there and he's gracious and he will give you what you need for life and what you need for godliness as well.